I'm Tom Peters, and you're listening to Leadership Biz Cafe. Hi, everyone. I'm Tavi Nasir, and this is Leadership Biz Cafe, a podcast that explores some of the challenges and opportunities leaders face in today's increasingly complex, fast-paced, and interconnected global market. Leadership Biz Cafe is brought to you by Tanvir Nasir Leadership, our leadership firm that provides both virtual and in-person leadership keynotes, corporate trainings, and consulting services that will help you to improve the way you lead. To learn more about our services and some of the companies and organizations we've had the pleasure to work with and what they've had to say about our work, visit our company's website at tavinasir.com. And while you're there, check out my award-winning internationally acclaimed leadership blog as well. Well, I'm so excited to welcome a very special guest to my podcast, the one and only Tom Peters. If you spent any amount of time reading leadership books or listening to leadership podcasts, there's a few people whose names you soon become familiar with. And one of those names is Tom Peters, a self-described people and community first maniac. While I did start off wanting to talk to Tom about what he's calling his final book, Excellence Now, Extreme Humanism, our conversation touched on so many critical aspects of leadership today. I know many of you have shared with me that you often jot down notes while listening to my podcast. Well, I could tell you, you better get ready, as there are so many Tom Peters gems to be found in our conversation. And what I love is how effortlessly he shares them in our wide-ranging conversation. And yes, there are many times where I was pretty much like you right now, sitting back and listening to Tom as he shared his insights, including at one point talking about something he's never shared before. It is truly such a treat and honor to be able to have Tom on my podcast and share a part of our conversation with you. I have no doubt you'll notice the excitement and joy in my voice to be able to chat with one of the preeminent leadership thinkers out there. And now, here's my conversation with Tom Peters about leadership, empathy, excellence, and making a difference. Hi, Tom. Welcome to the Leadership Biz Cafe. Thank you. It is a great pleasure to be here. And as an American, it's always a thrill to be speaking to Canadians. You guys are so much better than we are. <laughs> well, Tom. I probably insulted a third of the audience when I said that. But. <laughs> <laughs> well, I do have to tell you, Tom, and I'd so sorry for conversation by telling you both what an honor it is to have you on my show and how thrilled I am to have the chance to speak with you about your work and leadership craft. I know in your latest book, Leadership Excellence, Extreme Humanism, you opened up about this being your last one. You mentioned how your work is a product of being on the shoulders of giants, maybe whom you list in your book. And so taking that perspective into account in terms of how we're going to approach today's conversation, I would say many of us, myself included, see you as being like our favorite teacher who's helped us understand the nature of leadership and how we should be approaching leadership and really to bring out the best in those we lead. And, you know, that's through your writings, your talks and your tweets, because you and I both follow each other on Twitter. So I've been reading with much relish the tweets you send out there. And so I really appreciated how you've helped us not only get a better understanding what it means to lead, but also what we should be doing to bring out the best in ourselves as well as in those around us. So for me, I'm looking at this as a conversation between a teacher and a student after hours. We're actually getting to have those honest conversations uh, about the craft 
and to basically learn from you and to pick your brain and gain more insights. So I hope that sounds good to you is how we're going to approach today's conversation. No, it doesn't sound good. (laughs) (laughs) Not buying your act. Uh, we We are two people who care deeply about the same subject, having a conversation. And I got lucky in 1982 and a whole lot of people bought a book that had an initial print run of 2,500. But you worry about this day and night. I worry about it day and night. It's just two guys over a cup of coffee or a glass of Chardonnay or whatever it happens to be. Fair enough. I don't happen to drink, so I don't get to do the Chardonnay anymore. (laughs) I I do drink the coffee, so I'll, I'll definitely join you on a cup of coffee for that one. And now in your latest book, Excellence Now Extreme Humanism, you do cover 15 topics alongside with 75 to do. So there's clearly no way we're going to cover all of that in this show. Oh, damn. I thought that was the point. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's, it's going to be the speed round, Tom, right? I'm going to have a little I'm going to have a little ticker going on. And we're going to see how many we can cover in two minutes. <laughs> but I, I what I would really like to do is kind of touch on those elements, which I think are really timely in terms of a lot of the conversations being had right now. And to, to really get your insights to really encourage people to think and maybe even rethink how they're approaching it, how they're viewing it. And I think a great place to start this, and it's a quote of yours I've seen you share on Twitter and elsewhere and some of the documents, PDFs you've shared out freely on your site and through your links you've been sharing on Twitter. And it's this statement you write in this book that excellence is not an aspiration. Excellence is not a hill to climb. Excellence is the next five minutes or it is nothing at all. And what I love about this statement is that it gives us that permission and ownership to basically say, we got to make an effort in this next five minutes to do better now. Like whatever happened before, now's the opportunity for us to improve, get better. And once we do that, hey, we got now another five minutes to do that again. And it's important to note here that it's not about narrowing our focus to narrow to five minutes. Cause I know right now there's a lot of short termism is like right. people like to refer to it where we're really looking on short term goals. How can we make this quarter better? And that's it. But it's really about understanding how in that five minutes, we have the ability as leaders to make an impact, to create a ripple that is really going to go through our organization. Yeah. So I really would love for you to touch more on this and, and share your insights into this brilliant statement, Tom. Well, in the chit chat that you had, before we went on the air, as it were, you were talking or we were talking about body language and how a leader can walk into the office with a frown on his or her face. And no matter what their message is, including a good news message, it's the frown that is remembered. Uh, And I, and that's, that, that's that's the story. I mean, you'll get a kick out of this because of your of your medical training. I had this hypothesis, and I checked it out with a friend who is a rather renowned psychiatrist. And I said, Steve, if give me leader X, if I can view the last 10 10 line or longer emails that she or he wrote, I can do a complete, technically accurate 
psychiatric diagnosis of that person. And he had a smile and he said, I don't think you're going to go all the way. But he said, your point is incredibly well taken. Let me tell you the teeniest story in the world, but that's what we're talking about this next five minutes. Uh, my wife and I have, you know, somebody who helps us with our finances and that person retired and we're working with someone else. Uh, I live in greater Boston there, there in Boston. And I get an email from them. I remember it took me six months to figure it out. And the email always starts, hi, Tom, comma, space, and then the business. And then after that, it says, hope you have a good day, comma, space, Barbara. Uh, and suddenly it hit me between the eyes. I, I mean, I love it. It's just taking that extra little time to use the name and personalize it because the average email starts out with, you know, we're behind by two minutes, two, hour, two and a half days on this thing. And now we have to get to work on it. And I want to hear your list of five things and so on. And, you know, and, and the stupid little high Tom, it just, it sets the tone. And, 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 you know, I really would like to say excellence is the next 60 seconds. Uh, but either way, 60 seconds, five minutes, it's totally the next the next moment. Uh, you know, I have a pretty good reputation as a speaker. And I said to somebody, I said, you know, there are a lot of people in the room who are always smarter than I am, but I think I'm one of the best at reading body language. And fundamentally, it's about locking eyes with somebody in the second row and watching in some way that is not technically accurate, but is real, watching their reaction to what I'm saying. And, uh, you know, and, and that, but that's the next five minutes or more important, the next five seconds. It's being, you know, really, really sensitive to that. Incidentally, uh, another thing that you and I touched on in our opening conversation, which is tied to this, but we can stick on the excellence of the next five minutes, is if you want somebody who, reacts to somebody else's body language, be kind of nice if you hired them based to a significant degree on their empathetic. Now, I don't, I'm not arguing EQ, the uh, emotional quotient. I'm not arguing about whether it's accurate or not accurate. Hire for empathy. I mean, it's one of the big things that I say, and I say it much more vocally, as it were, in this book than I have in the past. Uh, you know, as a guy who's a biotech CEO, and he said, a lot of our secret of success is I only hire nice people. And he said, now look, he said, there are degrees, university degrees in my field where I can't even pronounce the name of the degree, let alone know what it's all about. But he said, okay, he said, guess what? There are actually a lot of people who have that degree. Don't hire the jerks. Uh, and and, and I, I've just gone bananas on the empathy thing. For initial hiring in R&D as much as frontline people at a hotel and times 10 when you're making a promotion. And you know some of the people who are, are listening to us are in pretty big companies. And one of my arguments, it's in my top 10 list, is by far the most important asset in any mid-size or larger organization is the full population of first-line managers. 
First line managers are responsible, no exaggeration, for everything. And, you know, the research says people don't leave companies, they leave bosses. You know, you can at some level have a dishonest company, and if you love your boss, you're going to stay, or you can have an honest company, and if your boss is a jerk, you know, the odds go way up that, that you're going to leave. But uh, I've always believed in the empathy thing, but now I became have become a raving frothing fanatic on the topic but it's again you know your next message how do you start the message you know can we meet downstairs because we're having a problem with this deadline that's coming up this afternoon i mean it's you know you might as well say f you uh and just get, get over with it and and all you have to say is you know i think it'd be a nice idea if we just took a couple minutes and chatted or it's it's just it's it isn't trivial i mean that's another discussion. I don't, I don't know how much of it, I'm not trained well enough, is nature versus how much of it is nurture in that regard. I think a pretty heavy dose of both in reality. Uh, but excellence is the next five minutes. I'll go to my grave on that one as a, as a, as a top five idea. And the way you get long-term excellence is to really pay attention. I mean, another of my things that I use in, in the written word you know, the greater than sign. And the greater than sign for me is small is more powerful than big. You know, it, it is a collection of those little moments. It is a collection of small improvements that changes the quality of our conversation or what, whatever, whatever it might be. I, I just get so tired of we need a blockbuster strategy to deal with this disruption that we're in the middle of now. You know, give me a break. You know, it's like my view of artificial intelligence. Uh, I am not an expert. I have done a lot of reading. And this is not just because I'm a very old man, but I don't know where AI is going to be 20 years from now. But I know that to get to 20 years from now, first, you've got to get through this afternoon. And... Uh, or, or even if we do it in technology terms, to get to 20 years, you've got to get through the first five years first. And which is not to say to disregard the revolutionary impact, but it is to say, let's focus on getting the next thing right. Absolutely. Sorry, that was long-winded. No, not at all. I mean, I absolutely love how I, I can almost imagine people, because I've had people in my audience send me emails talking about how one, for example, you say, I used to go and listen to your podcast when I go jogging, but I kept stopping to jot down. Oh, that's a really good point. I want to not forget that, that I was ruining his run times. So I can almost imagine when I ask that question, people are like, okay, great. What's the strategy I'm going to implement Monday morning? And then here we are. Here, here it is, folks. It's about being intentional of how we're showing up and demonstrating that empathy and not just thinking about ourselves. To your point, when I'm talking about your stories, when we set out those emails, we're not just thinking of ourselves of what it is I need from the other person. It is understanding I'm coming into their day. So I want to make sure, am I coming into their day? Are they in a good place or is there something off? And if there's something off me as a leader, is there something there that I need to address and need to take care of? And it's actually a perfect segue to something I want to discuss with you, Tom, because as I'm sure you've seen, there's been a lot of discussion now, now that we're kind of getting hopefully towards the, the end point of this current pandemic where we're starting to realize that, you know what, I don't think we're going to go be going back. And many leaders I've talked to have said, no, we're not going back to 
pre-2019 work environments, but we're real there. A lot of them are embracing what a lot of people are calling the hybrid workplace where we're going to give people the option. Some people, if you want to work exclusively from home, fine. Some of you want like some ratio, that's okay. And if some of you just want to work in the office, you don't want to work from home, that's okay too. And in some of the discussions I've been having with leaders about this, it's been interesting to see how in that discussion, it's been less about the technology, the processes, how are we going to manage the timesheets and so forth. It's really been more about understanding what do I need to communicate? Well, how do I connect with them? How do I now understand what are the challenges they're facing? What are their pain points they're facing? So I'm not sure if you've had those similar conversations, but do you think as we're all, because before it would only be select industries that were welcoming this idea of remote working. Now everyone's seen the benefits. They've seen the the added value in terms of productivity, in terms of the bottom line. Do you think this is now going to finally open the door where leaders are now going to be saying, hey, we should be not thinking about excellence in terms of our processes, in terms of our strategies, but really in terms of how we lead our people and how we connect and build those relationships? I agree 100% only because there's no such thing as agreeing 101%. There are a dozen, dozen things I would like to say, uh, and I'll try to figure out a couple of the ones that I think are most important. Relative to dealing with this mixed workplace, et cetera, remember there are no experts and you've got to experiment your way in. That's absolutely positively critical. Uh, There are some books coming and there'll probably be 150 of them in 18 months from now, uh, but you've got to play with it. I. I think if the pandemic, I think, and I haven't said this before, so I'm thinking out loud. I think if the pandemic were over and I was leading a group of 25 people who had worked in an office, we'd still have some physical get-togethers. You know, my psychology training actually isn't half bad. I, I remember a company I was was working with years ago. It was actually an architecture company. And they built a new facility. And outside the men's room and the women's room, they placed chairs, little circle of chairs, or not chair chairs, but, you know, good chairs, comfy chairs. And they said, it's really one of the most important things for creativity is to have people have accidental conversations when they come out of the loo. And you know, it's a it's a funny one-liner and it is a very deep point. And casual interactions, I haven't read all the research. I think there actually is plenty of it. Casual interactions are just beyond important. Uh, and and that worries me more than any of the technical stuff. Uh, and one, one, I mean, there's so many parts of it. One thing, and I don't think this is age, and you can respond to me otherwise if you think it is, but I've heard youngish people say it too. Uh, you still have this thing called a telephone. And, you know, we're Zooming, and you're frowning most of the way through. You, 
participated and you haven't made a fool out of yourself or anything, but something's in, something's in your head. Uh, I think it'd be a pretty good idea if you and I are on good terms, if I gave you a call afterwards and we just chatted. I mean, you, you, you said something in a slightly different context a few minutes ago, and it's, it's such a strong bias to me. Uh, well, you and I, neither of, a, neither of whom is very good at speaking Polish, we're talking about Coach K. Right. And uh, the great Duke basketball coach. And I remember him saying one time, it was the most profound thing I heard, or one of the two most profound things I heard from him. He said, 35 games a year, I never field the same team twice. Mm. Because Tom on the 15th of March is not Tom on the 22nd of March. And he also had, which also is associated with one of my favorite topics, Coach K has his wife sit in on team meetings. And he said his wife is much better at reading the body language of a player than I am. You know, he knows that, you know, the world's greatest three-pointer is having a three-point shooter is having a girlfriend problem. <laughs> but but it's it, the, the, the crucial part for every leader of everything all the time is First of all, you don't know more than 2% of the person you're talking about to. Uh, and that's probably even true with a, almost with a spouse. Uh, and besides, they are different on Tuesday than they were on Monday. It'll be different again on Wednesday. Uh, and you know, now, obviously, it's easy, easy in the worst sense to say this in the age of the pandemic. But I said, you know, uh, Mary is frowning a lot and not very engaged at the meeting and you know you're the boss and you're a little bothered by that here's what you don't know my friend mary's 83 year old mother was just given a hard alzheimer's uh diagnosis three or four days ago that's where mary is that's where mary should be i mean you know, it's funny i i was have talked a lot about uh leadership in 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 the time of covid and I made a smart aleck remark that was actually deadly true. I said, I got a 10 person team and we're having Zoom meetings damn near once a day. If your attendance record is perfect, I got a problem with you <laughs> because I know you have three kids and I know you have this and I know you have that. And the goal during the pandemic is family and community first, productivity third. And of course, which is true of all the things we're talking about, if that's the way I treat you, I'm going to have more productivity coming from you than I would have under any other circumstances. But and it's just, you know, and again, this is an old person talking and this is, well, it's totally relevant, but it's, it's not. David Brooks is a New York Times columnist and a very smart guy. And he gave me, us, four words that I think may be the most important that I ever heard in my life, including when as a youthful Presbyterian, I read a lot of the Bible. Uh, resume virtues versus eulogy virtues. And those are his four words. And the resume virtues are, I went to McGill, then I got a PhD at the University of Chicago, uh, I was promoted three times in my first five years, blah, 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 blah. Eulogy virtues, as, as, Brooke, as Brooks put it, eulogy virtues are what do they say about you at the funeral? 
what do they say about you at the funeral? And they do not talk about your 4.1 grade point average at the University of Chicago's PhD programs. I used to use this on a PowerPoint slide. I would have a tombstone and it would say $14,273,618.04 net worth of the individual at the stock market the day that he died. There are no tombstones with net worth on them. That is, that is not the measure. But I mean, the, the thing that's, I know it's tough about these conversations. We need to hire good human beings. We need to promote good human beings. We have to behave as good human beings. Uh, and then next time you look at your balance sheet, you'll find out it's a lot better than it was six months ago. Uh, my description, I think I used it in the new book. I said, my definition of a leader, and as I said when I wrote it, and I am using a very carefully chosen word, the definition of a good leader is that she or he is desperate, desperate for each of the four or 24 or 2,400 people uh, who work for him or her to succeed and grow. Uh, and, and, you know, that's, that's the eulogy virtues, that's the balance sheet virtues. Uh, and I, I, I said to somebody, I have four quant degrees from leading institutions, but if you want to understand everything that I write about, you must show me a signed certificate suggesting that you successfully graduated from the fourth grade. <laughs> you know, you, that's it. That's it. That's, that's, that's all that's required. It's about human being, beings treating other. And, and it's just, I mean, I know, I know this is little trivial stuff, but, uh, and I just jumped on somebody at Twitter. They said, People are our most important asset, to which my response was bullshit. People are not an asset. People are Tom or Dick or Jane or Mary or what have you. You know, an organization is its people, period. And that's as true if we are talking about Google as if we are talking about a three-person appliance repair shop who lives in a little town next to me. I mean, I, I want to. I want to, and I, one of those, whatever it is, 50 or 75 things I do, I want to expunge the term HR from the English language. So here's the deal. I'm an only child. Uh, I'm born at 1.42 a.m. At four o'clock, my father, Frank Peters, is allowed into the birthing room. And he looks at my mother only child, remember, first one. And he says, Evelyn, we finally have our own first little human resource. <laughs> <laughs> he does not say that. No. You know, look, look at the birth certificate. But, but I mean, that's what HR means to me. Uh, I'm not a human resource. I'm Tom. Uh, and, and if you want me to do good work, you'll treat me as Tom, not Tom the human. It's just, I hate it. 
Uh, and I love a lot of people who are in HR and, and I, I always forgive HR people and I forgive them because a lot of their bosses want them simply to worry about, want to be cops, cops for, you know, human resource issues and so on. But I just despise the term. It makes it, you know, it sends tingles up my back or, you know, what have you. I completely agree with you. And if anyone who's ever attended my keynotes might recall in some of my talks, I bring up this point that as leaders, one of our responsibilities is to see our employees beyond their role, their title, their tasks, see them as the person. And I often share this great story that helps illustrate the value of that of uh, Nelson Mandela. I remember when he passed, everyone was sharing their own personal stories. And one of them was of this person who worked in a hotel who said, I used to go when, when Nelson Mandela came and stayed in London, uh, I would go and bring the meals up to his suite. And he would always welcome him. The first day he was there, he got he found out his name. And then every time afterwards, he would always greet him with a smile with his name. He Suddenly he started knowing more about his family. Oh, how is your wife doing? Did she, did she get that thing at work? And so forth. And this is Nelson Mandela. But the kicker came is that one time when he was coming in to deliver a meal, he asked, oh, please come in, come in, come in. He walks him into the, the living area of the room and he says to him, look, uh, I don't know, let's say his name's William. I would love to introduce you to the prime minister of the UK. I love it. I love the reaction I see from the audience because I give that pause so that they realize, oh my goodness, here is someone who is a citizen of the United Kingdom being introduced to his the leader of his country as though they were peers by Nelson Mandela. Oh. Because for Nelson Mandela, look, your role is important. You're helping keeping this building, this hotel going. The reason I'm staying here is because of the quality of care you're providing me in between the meetings I have to attend. Why wouldn't I want to show that appreciation and show here is someone else who is also serving people. He just happens to have a larger mandate, but he's doing the same kind of work as you are. And so I'm a wholeheartedly agree with you on that. No, that I love the Mandela example. Um, there are a couple of other men. I, I mean, another piece of it, which is back the body language is somebody who was serious said when he was elected president, they said the entire election was about Mandela's smile. <laughs> And he had the world's greatest smile. And with a smile like that, you knew he wasn't about to go out and start a civil war, among, among other things. But, well, yeah, it's funny because the same book, it, 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 I, I remember reading, re, and this was, yeah, it's a perfect example because the one I remember uh, is he was having, when he was in prison, the justice minister somewhere late in the prison term came to visit him and have a discussion. And since Mandela is obviously an incredibly high value prisoner, he was brought in with six guards surrounding him. And so, you know, you're the justice minister and we begin to chat and Mandela says, oh my heavens, he said, I am remiss, Mr. Minister. Let me introduce you to these gentlemen. And he knew them all by name. And so he goes around with the six prison guards. And it was it was not an act. Mm -mm. It was not an act. Uh, I mean, it's a it's a it's a different discussion. Uh, because we don't have a million years. I'm going to hire for empathy and promote for empathy. But I come into a place where that hasn't exactly been the way of life. 
uh, how much of it is trainable and how much of it has to come from the genes. And it's a much longer discussion. I think it's, I think it's very genetic and very trainable. I don't have any problem with, with having it be both ways. I think if people treat each other well, then even the stinkers in the room will come a long way over, over a period of time. Uh, but I still, I want to hire for empathy. And, and so you say, what do we do with all the non-empathetic people? I say, we'll have to deal with that in the next episode. Uh, <laughs> Well, the thing is, though, Tom, there's a keynote I do about my book, and I talk about compassion. And one of the things I say that's key to driving compassion, cultivating compassion organization, is tapping into our empathy. And I do point out how neuroscience studies have shown we're all hardwired to express empathy. And I tell people, like, look, think about when a natural disaster happens, not in your state, not in your city, not in your country. And there's these calls from the Red Cross. Look, we we're looking for donations. We're looking for whatever. And people will go. And suddenly there's always an increase in blood drives. No matter where it happens, even though for most people, they probably realize it's not going to necessarily go to the, the area that's been affected, but people feel, I want to do something. And it's uh, consistently happens around the world. Whenever there's a disaster gets publicized, there is this uptick in blood donations because people feel this need to want to do something. Yeah. Yeah, we all have it. So I agree with you that it is genetic. I think it's a muscle, though. And I think what happens is, is that over time, we're taught to remove it. We're taught that it's not a good thing. And so we put it aside. And so but I think some people, for whatever reason, they don't, they retain it, either their environment allowed them to, or they had a belief, an internal belief that, no, no, this is important. So I do think for those who are thinking, okay, but what am, I don't really feel like I'm empathetic. And I, to, to be really on the point that you were sharing earlier about the eulogy and the different types of criteria, there is an exercise I do in some of my workshops where I tell people, I want you to think about that leader you worked under who really brought the best out in you and who if you want to aspire to be a leader, that's the role model you'd want to be. I want you to write 10 things, if you can, or more, if you want, of what are the things that they made you feel about yourself, about your capabilities, about your competencies. Write down at least 10. If you got more than 10, go for it. I let them write all that. And some people write like 20, 30. They're just going furiously. Yeah. And I see people's reactions as they're making that list. People become animated. They're chatting amongst themselves. They're getting excited. There's this positive surge of energy. I say, that's great. Okay. Now we're going to go to the next page here. I want you to write over the last five years, what was your return on investment and what was the annual earnings this leader attained? I'll give you five minutes. And then I just see people looking at you going like, oh, crap, I don't know. I don't recall that. And so I tell people, like, the reason I'm giving this exercise is to demonstrate to you that what's going to matter in terms of how you lead others is not the annual earnings. Oh, well, we got an uptick in our market share by this much. It's how you made the people around you feel about their sense of their contributions, about their being belonging to this community, this organization, and the value that they are creating, maybe for their coworkers, but also for those your organization serves through your products and services. This is how you make this impression that years later, when someone thinks about working for you as you being their leader, this is what they're going to remember about you. And it's amazing how everyone comes out of those conversations saying, it completely pivots how I look at my role now. I'm not looking at it in terms of what I used to, those metrics, those spreadsheets. I'm now thinking about that conversation I had, and I was really curt 
and I'm almost dreading what they think of me now. And I said, good. And now you've given me the tools to say, you know what? Excellence is the next five minutes. So use these next five minutes and change it. Amen. <laughs> no, I, 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 I love the exercise. I think it's absolutely brilliant. Uh, and I can't respond to that. There, there's not, there's not a semicolon that I would change in the printed version of what you've said over the last 90 seconds. <laughs> I, I, I completely, completely agree. Well, it, you know what? It's kind of leading me into another thing that you talk about in this book. And that, that's really at the heart of when we talk about excellence. And it's what we've been basically talking about, which is the betterment of people, that it's about improving the lives of both your employees and consequently those who benefit from your products or services. And, you know, again, if we think about all the things we're talking about, and we can all relate to this, where, you know, you'll have an interaction with somebody and they do something. There's this touch point where maybe they compliment you. Hey, by the way, I really appreciated you bringing up that point in that meeting about this thing. I hadn't thought about that. Or, you know what? Thanks a lot for uh, bringing this uh, book to my attention. I'm really enjoying it. And how that simple, subtle little conversation really makes our day a little brighter. And there's many examples actually out there of organizations that have embraced this idea of betterment people. And one of mine's go-to is uh, that's been on my mind actually last few months is Zappos with their mantra of delivering happiness, which is also the title of uh, the late Tony Shea's book. And it's, it evokes a lot of things that I've read in the numerous studies that have proven that when people feel like they're making a difference, that their work matters, they're so much more engaged and empowered to bring their best efforts to the work they do. And I know this has been one of your frustration points that in spite of all these studies, in spite of examples of organizations that are thriving and doing so well, we still see companies that, despite making substantial profits, especially over this past year, with all the restrictions brought forth by the pandemic, everyone was afraid of all the economic losses. There's been so many companies that have somehow managed to turn a profit and even exceed expectations. And yet we see many of people, many employees in those organizations struggling to make ends meet because of anemic pay wages over the last few decades. So I think we've made the case for how it's so simple for us to pay attention to people and being intentional while we show up. So for those leaders who I know who are listening, who want to be that kind of leader that when they think about those best leaders that brought out the best in them, they want to be that to the people they lead. What are the things they should be focusing on in terms of their efforts and the efforts of the organization towards the betterment of the people both they lead and those they serve outside the organization? Well, one thing I might do is, is uh, refer people to a book that I would uh, highly recommend more than my own. Uh, a guy by the name of Matthew Kelly wrote a book called The Dream Manager. And he said... Everybody has a dream. And it was the, the book was in theory, not based upon any particular organization. In reality, it was. And the organization he based it on was a housekeeping organization that did housekeeping in hospitals, hotels, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And he said, everybody has a dream. There's that frontline <clears throat> woman in housekeeping. She has two jobs, if not three. She is a single mom with two kids. 
And, but she's only 32. And if somehow she could find just a little extra money in time to get a degree at a community, not to get a degree, to take a course at a community college that might start her on a different trajectory. And he said, your, your goal number one as a leader is to help people fulfill their dreams. And, and, and it gets back to everything we said in the conversation. The dreams are not to become the next prime minister of Canada or president of the United States. It's the dream that just to have a chance to spend a little more time with my father who's sick or, or what have you. And, and then he says, which is again, exactly what you said in your comment, if you help people fulfill their dreams and grow, they will not help you, but they will help together. You will create an organization which is much more effective relative to its, to its clients. And I, I, just, I just have loved that. And I mean, the great thing about it was, is I had confirmation that it was a true story because I gave a speech to a group and the president of the company who he was modeling this so, modeling in the book was there and she was absolutely fantastic and, and we talked about the same thing uh, people don't want well they don't want the moon they want to be treated as adults they wanted to, they want to be helped a little bit in moving forward it, it, it's just it's i mean that's the great frustration and that that we're not we're not asking for the moon and we're not asking for them to you know to make a donation to make sure that all three of your kids go to McGill University or you know the University of Michigan or what have you. It's just basic human decency. And I mean it's it's I did this I did this thing because I, I do have a new book and when the when the pandemic started picking up speed uh my wife was doing a lot of helpful community things and I was sitting on my butt and my colleague, Shelly Dolly, who you have met uh, on the screen and I were talking about it. And I said, I know this sounds silly and maybe it even sounds arrogant, but I want to volunteer to go on podcasts to talk about leadership in times of COVID. And I don't even know where this came from. We put it as a second page in the new book. And I developed what I called the Leadership 7 COVID-19. Be kind, be caring, be patient, be forgiving, be positive, be present, walk in the other person's shoes. And it's always possible. Mm -hmm. And it doesn't start in the next five minutes. It starts in the next 30 seconds. Uh, and I, I said, all you need is that third grade certificate to understand this. It's not, it's not, I mean, the good news, you, you have a technical degree and I have a technical degree. The good news is that all this soft stuff's got a ton of very hard research behind it. It's not you and I who are saying, oh, it'd be really, really nice if you did this. It, really would, it would be really, really nice. But guess what? Here's my little list of 115 uh, refereed articles which describe the power of doing X or the power of doing Y. It's there. 
uh, I mentioned to you that uh, I have this, this wonderful book recently came out called Compassionomics, uh, written by two MDs who are hard-nosed researchers with a capital H in hard. And it is the power of compassion, I believe in general, which is why I love the book, but in the world of healthcare. Uh, and because of a million different things, you guys are a little better than we are, maybe a lot better than we are. Uh, compassion has taken a dive. And I mean, there are two things I would say. There was this, this horrible article. I live near Boston, uh, Massachusetts General Hospital, otherwise known as MGH, is one of the best hospitals in the world. They did some research that was reported in the Boston Globe a year or so ago. The average nurse now carries a tablet as she slash he wanders around the hospital. Uh, and you're the patient and I'm the nurse and I'm with you for four minutes, which is a long period of time. I probably can't do that very often. During the four minutes, I spend most of my time entering stuff in the tablet. Mm -hmm. And what they discovered, and, and, and I think probably we have this in common, is they measured it. And literally eye contact between nurse and patient has gone down by 70% over the course of the last few years. And eye contact makes people well. And there's, there's just a million tons of research. There's a woman who, who lives near me, her name is Ellen Langer, and she's one of the top three social experimental social psychologists in the world, for God's sakes, and not many people disagree with that. But she started early on, and, and the one example I remember reading, which I love, if a patient in the hospital has greenery outside her or his hospital room, the recovery time will be reduced by 20%. It's just, there's a living thing. I mean, it's eye contact with a nurse, but it's also, you know, as I come out of surgery and whatever, whatever, there's a living tree. I mean, it, this stuff is just so powerful. And, and I would say for the umpteenth time, powerful and measured. And you can do it in the next five minutes. Uh, but this book, Compassionomics, is, is just phenomenal. They, they have the magic number 37. If a doctor makes 37 seconds worth of eye contact with, for example, a cancer patient in a discussion, uh, uh, side effects from the surgery go down, time in the hospital goes down, just these dramatic numbers that come from looking you in the eye for 30, 37 seconds. Uh, and then in our case, our healthcare system, which is, I believe, screwed up a lot more than yours, the, the double tragedy is that nurse who is entering data something like two thirds of the data is, is financial data. You know, your towel is dirty. Who do we bill the towel to for God's sakes? Okay. Well, as I mentioned, Tom, earlier at the beginning of this, you write in the book that this is your last one. And you've essentially said over the last four years that all that needs to be said about excellence is the pursuit of it. And it's not often I get to speak to somebody who's reached that point. So I have a question to you that I never get a chance to ask other guests on my show. And that is, I want- you mean young Yes, what you're trying to say. <laughs> no, I'm not going to go there. It's more career oriented. It's more okay. career oriented. But I wanted to ask about leadership and legacy. So, several years ago, I wrote a piece called, What Will Your Leadership Legacy Be? And in it, I make the point about how your leadership is not about you. It's about 
the people you lead. And then from that lens, we realize that it's important we reflect and ponder on what is it that we are leaving behind for our employees in terms of what they can take with and build and grow upon it going forward so that that becomes our legacy rather so that it's continuing on without us. So I'd like to ask you now that question about how you see your legacy being and what you hope will grow and evolve from all the efforts you've made. And I expect you will continue. And I hope you will continue to make about encouraging us and pushing us and dragging those of us who are reluctant to understand what excellence really means and how we should be more genuine and more intentional about how we engage and lead those under our care. Well, let's talk about arrogance. Uh, but it ties to what you're saying. And I'm being unfair to Tony Robbins. Uh, if Tony Robbins walks into a room of 500 people, and I'm really being unfair, but not totally unfair, his expectation is that he's going to change 500 lives. If I speak to a group of 700 people and four of those people walk out of that room with a little more commitment to the people stuff or what have you, I have had the most fantastic day of my life. And the really funny thing is if I met those four people, what I would find is they agreed with me before I came in the room. All I did was remind them. And I've had a million, a million people who I have not. I've had a hundred people or a thousand people come up to me after a speech and they've said, oh, this has been a fantastic day. I no longer think I'm weird. You know, that these, these sorts of practices are not crazy. And so my view of changing people is, uh, and, you know, my wife hates football. And so I hate to use football analogies. If you are on to use football, either Canadian or American, uh, if you are on your ten, own 10 yard line, I'm not sure I can help you very much get the next 90 yards. The people I'm here for are the people who are on their opponent's five yard line. And my entire goal in life is to give them a swift kick in the ass and push them over the line. But it's but it's people who are on the edge of it. It's you, you can you know I don't think very seldom do you convince people who if they walked in thinking you were a jerk the odds are very high they're going to walk out thinking you're even a bigger jerk. Uh, and so the legacy is is just those people who yeah you know, and, and, and there's a really important thing for me because you know it's an awful word to use now McKinsey and Company it used to be not so awful a word. Uh, but, you know, I kind of grew up working with the big companies and the big company CEOs. I don't save much, but I do have a few boxes of letters that go all the way back into In Search of Excellence. The letters I love are not the letters from a CEO. In fact, if I never got another one, I would be a perfectly happy camper. The letters I love come from a high school principal or a fire chief in a town of 9,000 uh, or somebody who's running a small shop somewhere. I mean, I, that, I mean, first of all, and, and, and again, I, 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 well, the analogy is perfectly fine with, with Canada. 
in, in the U.S., well, my people, the management guru class, primarily writes about the Fortune 500. And the Fortune 500 in the United States employs 7.5% of us, meaning 92.5% of us are not associated with Fortune 500. And the essence of business is not the Fortune 500. It's the five-person companies, the 10-person companies, the two-person companies, and relative to all the things we're talking about, you can make a dramatic difference in a fairly short, very short period of time uh, in, in places like that. But the, the legacy is those, uh, those who you touched at the right time, who started on a different trajectory, and maybe they made it, maybe they didn't. Uh, it's just to be helpful. And... And you know, I'm 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 incredibly lucky on 18,000 dimensions, but one of the pieces of luck relative to this, and this is said with the opposite of braggadocio, is I have two engineering degrees from Cornell and two business degrees from Stanford. So when somebody looks at me, it is impossible for them to say he's a softie. I can out. Quant, the quantiest quant in any bloody room in the world. So don't tell me that this is coming from a pussycat somewhere. You know, I am a miserable, hard-ass son of a bitch who was taught by a guy who got a statistics PhD from Chicago at the age of 21. You know, and it's, it's uh, you know, I, I, it's just, well, anyway, you be helpful a little bit. You know, that's all. We are having a conversation. People are, are, are listening to us. And, you know, a, a couple of them from the things that you said, which were at least as brilliant, if not more than any things I said or something I inadvertently said, something might just catch somebody at the right minute. But I do want to say one thing that that triggered, which I'm not sure it's totally relevant. Uh, there are three kinds of people, top three, who I despise. Mass murderers, child or spouse abusers, and number three on my list is successful people who think they deserve their success. Mm. There are 80 jillion lucky breaks which start, I've always said my greatest secret to success was choosing my parents carefully. <laughs> uh, and you know, a lot of it, you know, I, I said to somebody, you want to know why I'm successful? Very simple. I was born in 1942 in the United States of America of intelligent parents, and I'm a white male Protestant. And, you know, that's the first 93%, and the rest was details. I, I had this wonderful, I was, was in London, and a gentleman was, was driving me around, and I don't know what we were talking about, but he said to me at one time, he said, he said, you know what? There are two kinds of people who sit in the back seat of this car. The people who remember their roots and the people who think they deserve to be back there. And I said to him, look, I was never a philosophy major, but that hangs in with Plato at his best. <laughs> uh, and, it, and, it, and it really is true. There are you know, a million strokes of luck along the way. And you, you do your best and you try to be helpful. I, maybe the most moving day in my life my mother died in 2005 at the age of 96. Uh, my mother and father didn't have 
two pennies to scratch together. And there was a little, I lived in Annapolis, Maryland, a private school near where we were. The public schools weren't very good that they wanted me to go to and they didn't have the money for it. It was not one of those New England prep schools, for God's sakes. It was the opposite. And so my mother's mother, who had been a stay-at-home mom, uh, started teaching. Uh, and she taught the fifth grade for years and years and years. So we had my mother's memorial service. And needless to say, I gave an incredibly brilliant memorial service speech. Uh, and, you know, which is probably, you know, all the fancy stuff. The, the, but the whole thing for me was after that formal part was over, I was surrounded like a rugby scrum with dozen, two dozen, felt like 102 dozen people, a lot of them in their 40s or so. And they had been my mother's students in the fifth grade at Pasadena Elementary School. And I heard the same sentence over and over, that one year with your mother made the biggest difference in my life. Mm. And, you know, which is, you know, kind of to that point, and I want to say this clearly to everybody who is listening to us. On Twitter, somebody somewhere who was in my feed said something like, you know, uh, Elon Musk is one of the two most extraordinary people on earth. And I responded and I said, I admire Mr. Musk. I admire him almost as much as I admire a truly committed third grade teacher who for 20 years has been dramatically changing the lives of 25 kids a year. I said, Musk can take second, but she gets first or he gets first as the case may be. That's the real deal. That's the real deal. So. Absolutely. You know, Tom, there's so much I want to talk and ask you about. And I really hope I get the chance to have you on my show again. I'm just, as I said at the beginning, this has been such a treat for me. Like so many people, I've been inspired by your writings, by your work on leadership, by your challenging so many of us to rethink how we view leadership, that it's not really about, okay, getting those accolades, getting those rewards, getting those public recognitions, but really, how are you helping those you lead to be successful, to bring their best efforts, and ultimately to create value that benefits everyone and not just a select few? So I just really appreciate you coming on my show and sharing your insights. I know this was your last book, but I hope we're, you're still going to be out there pushing us, challenging us, getting us to, as you said, you're a hard science guy, but you're pushing the soft stuff because it's the message we need to hear now more than ever. And anytime you want to come back on my show to push it, I would absolutely love to have you on it because this has been a genuine joy, a truly a joy to have you on my show. Well, I want to return the comment and say the conversation has been a genuine joy for me. I can't remember the last time I had this much fun is the wrong word. Just challenge is the wrong word. It's just, it's a great, it's a great conversation. And whatever you think you may have learned from me, I learned at least as much and maybe more from you. So it's a, it was a, it was a good deal for both of us. And I would love to come back is the answer. Wow. That's a, that's a gold star from one of my favorite teachers. So that's going to go up on my fridge. <laughs> Thank you again, Tom, for coming on my show. I really appreciate it. Well, my great pleasure and take care. You know, there are some conversations which long after you've had them, you can still remember them fondly as a cherished memory. Without question, 
This conversation I had with Tom fits that bill, especially hearing again those wonderful comments he made at the end of our conversation. Now, I'm curious to hear what were your favorite moments of inspiration and reflection that Tom shared. And if you'd like to see some of my favorite insights Tom shared with me, as well as read that article I mentioned to Tom near the end of our conversation, check out the show notes for this episode by visiting the podcast page on my website at tavernaseer.com slash LBC. And that's a wrap on this episode of Leadership Biz Cafe, brought to you by Tavernaseer Leadership. Now, if you enjoyed learning about this or other insights I've discussed here on my leadership podcast and you'd be interested in having me share them with your employees, I'd like to invite you to fill out the contact form on our website at tavinasir.com so we can start that discussion. You can also check out my speaking page on our company website to learn more about my speaking services and the kinds of topics I cover. In the meantime, I'd like to encourage you to share this or other episodes of my podcast with your colleagues and employees. The easiest way to do this is to simply share a link to my show's podcast page at tavernaseer.com slash LBC. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review my leadership podcast on your preferred podcast platform. And with that, I'm Tavernaseer, and you've been listening to Leadership Biz Cafe. Leadership Biz Cafe.